Psalm 78 closed last week with how God will appoint someone like David to come and handle the flock with integrity and by the skill and guidance of his hands. So God is going to give us good leadership again. I think we've seen enough already in going through the Psalms that this is speaking of the end time and the church now more specifically than it has any era in the past. And we'll see even more of that probably today. I, I found it interesting when I picked this up and, and began looking at Psalm 79 uh, in terms of today's sermon that many of the things that are said right off the bat here are some of the very thoughts that have been going through my mind and then the subject of some of my prayers in the last few days in preparing for uh, the Passover service and examining self and, uh, you know, we, we put unleavened bread out. It's actually quite easy to put uh, leavening out of your toaster and your refrigerator compared to putting the leavening out of your head. Uh, that's the big challenge, uh, and that's where the emphasis needs to be. So many of the thoughts that I was having and the prayers about the church and where we are in, in time and how we deal with the issues that face us uh, were coming to mind pretty regularly. And then when I picked this up, I thought, wow, <laughs> uh, here's a lot of my own thinking. It's so timely to have Psalm 79 where it is, where we are, and just before the Passover. So getting into it in Psalm 79, verse 1, O God, the heathen are come into your inheritance. So we had unconverted men who came into the church. The inheritance of God uh, is his people. Uh, yeah, land is important, and God created the land and created the earth, but who did he create it for? For the people. He's not going to make mountains and rivers into God. He's going to make people into God. So we are the true inheritance. Uh, we may inherit the earth as a place to be, but the inheritance of eternal life and of becoming God is what the real inheritance is. And in that sense, it is even the inheritance of the Father and the Son themselves, since for the work that they have done over the last millennia is what they inherit. God-fearing, loving people who will live together in peace and harmony and love for all eternity. That's what they inherit out of the work that they have done. But we did have heathen come in within the church. It said that there would be, there in Second Thessalonians, one who would stand in the temple of God, placing himself in place of God. And certainly, I think that could be said of those who came in, whom I checked out, and they seemed to be of Edomite background. They came into the true tabernacles of Jacob, of Israel, the true church, and supplanted it, and took it over, and destroyed it, basically, just as the physical Edomites are about to come into our country. Well, they're already here, and already are in uh, power in terms of the Wall Street and the financial and the governmental parts of our government and are quickly selling us out to the New World Order. So what has happened in the church is happening now before our very eyes in the nation. But our first concern here is the church, and that's what this 
immediately addresses. Your inheritance, your holy temple, have they defiled. So one stood in the temple of God, as Second Thessalonians said would happen, and proclaimed Satan's way, a different God than the true God, is what he proclaimed. Uh, they have laid Jerusalem on heaps, just big piles of refuge, of material broken and beaten down, uh, as it puts it in other places, our holy houses have been defiled and torn down, and they're just a pile of rubbish now. And that's basically what the church is, all split, splintered, broken, and into pieces. We've gone over this many times, but lo and behold, you can go through the Bible, and anywhere you go, you find the same old story from Genesis to Revelation. It's always there. It is the theme of the Bible is about the holy people and their relationship with God. And the biggest one, and the, the greatest fulfillment, is right here and now, at the end time. Because the grand finale is upon us. The church will no longer be laid waste, because after this resurrection of the latter temple, which is about to occur, that will be the last one. And God will not allow it to be completely destroyed, even though it will have to flee for its very life at the time the abomination is set up after Jerusalem is rebuilt, and they can come in and take it over. The dead bodies of your servants have they given to be meat to the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of the saints to the beasts of the earth. Now these things have occurred in the past on both a spiritual and a physical level, perhaps more particularly a physical level in terms of martyrdom and so on. But in the spiritual sense, we have already suffered from the spiritual famine and pestilence and the sword, and many, many people have given up, quit, left, or are going through the motions and barely living spiritually. Well, that has already happened in the church, and... It is about to happen in the nation and to probably about 90% of the church will also be physically martyred and killed. So this is a process that is occurring right now, already spiritually and about to start physically. Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. Hasn't the church been that way? We've had so many dead and dying spiritually across the nation and around the world. And since the church is so scattered out, there's no one to even take care of those who are dead and dying. The, you know, just little groups here and there. And no overall way to take care of the needs. <coughs> we are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision that are around about us. Uh, I was in a group of people from this general neighborhood the other day, and uh, somebody knew more about us than others do in the community around us here, and they were, she was trying to explain, well, they're Worldwide Church of God. Well, hardly anybody anymore even knows what that is, or was. It's, uh, huh? What's that? So we're a scorn and a derision. Uh, you try to explain, well, 
it was a fairly big church, and then it all split and splintered into pieces, and there's not much left. That makes you a reproach and a derision, doesn't it? How do you explain that this was a good church, this wasn't bad, this was God's church, and now it's basically gone? How do you put that into a positive spin? How do you make it sound good? How could the Apostle John, after all the apostles were killed, the church scattered, most of them uh, uh, martyred, and many in a great falling away, and the church had almost disappeared by 100 A.D., almost gone. Now, how did you explain that to people? Now, this fellow came, he was born, and he was the Messiah, and he started this church, and he trained these fishermen and tax collectors, and they went out, and there was a big deal, you know, and it was growing big, and it seemed like it was great, and all of a sudden, it was gone. But it was great, it was good, and it was God's church. Now, how many believers are you going to get on that deal? We're in kind of the same position. <coughs> Verse 5, how long eternal? We read that just a few chapters back. It is a thought that comes to our minds quite often. How long eternal? Will you be angry forever? Shall your jealousy burn like fire? Now, we know from many scriptures this isn't going to last very long. But from our human standpoint, it seems like a long time. It seems like it just goes on and on, day after day, year after year. When will this end? How long, O Lord? So we have to persevere. We have to be patient. We have to not give up. We have to move forward and grow, not sit and do nothing. But it seems like it is a long, hard trial to us. A day is not as a thousand years to you and me. (laughs) And human days can get difficult when we face all kinds of different problems and difficulties and health issues and you name it. Pour out your wrath upon the heathen that have not known you and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon your name. It's easy for us to sit and have that emotion. You know, why, why, we're the ones that are trying to obey you. Why do you keep dumping all the trouble on us? Why don't you put it on the heathen that don't know you? Now, isn't that a normal human reaction? Yes, it is. We don't like trials, troubles, and tribulation, do we? We don't like hardship, do we? We don't like a lot of things that we go through. They're hard. They're difficult. How long will it last? Why don't you pour it out on them? Well, we're right there. It isn't very far away when this is about to start. His his emphasis will shift and his anger from us to them. Once we have repented, we'll see here. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. The heathen did come in and devoured the church, laid it waste. They're about to do it with the nation as well. And we'll get to that in chapter 83 where it says a consortium of nations of the heathen will come over against Israel. And I don't mean in the Middle East, the peoples of Israel, including this country. 
Verse 8. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. That would be our prayer, that God would forgive everything that we've ever done wrong. Our past would be wiped out. Let your tender mercies speedily proceed us, for we are brought very low. So we look at the way we were and the lackadaisical, go through the motions approach toward God and toward his laws and everything. And we'd like to be forgiven of that and God's anger to dissipate and go away. And this is to humble us, to bring us very low, to get us off the pride, the vanity, the ego that we still exhibit and the way we approach life and each other. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for your name's sake. So this is speaking of church people, isn't it? This isn't just the nation around us. This is his people, the God of our salvation. The people of this nation don't know God as the God of salvation. They don't know about salvation. They have no clue what real salvation is. We're the ones that are being put down right now. Not them. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? If we're God's people, if we're God's church, then wouldn't you expect to see all kinds of blessings? Wouldn't you expect healing? Wouldn't you expect various things that are benefits from Almighty God in heaven, if these are indeed his people? Well, you would. And then people look at us and say, well, you're no different than anybody else. You have trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, and, you know, and you're being scattered abroad and destroyed. So it's only natural they say, yeah, where's their God? Who's their God? And even we, who are to walk by faith, as the just are, are told over and over in here that these things would come upon us because of the way we have been and are. And yet even we might begin to say, where is our God? You know, it is not his problem. It's our problem. He is ready, willing, and able to bless us at any time when we get our attitudes and our lives right. He's waiting and wanting to do that. And has prophesied that it will happen. <clears throat> but it's frustrating to us to say, how much do we expect of us? Now, I'm not even going to try to quantify that. How can we say, this is good enough? Or that's good enough? Now God will surely bless us because we've reached this level of spirituality. We can't make that judgment. We can only press forward and try to get as close to him and his ways as we possibly can. The standard is very high, and this word is his standard. And that's what we're supposed to reach. It is very difficult to do. Very few human beings have come close since Adam and Eve were in the garden. And only a few, by comparison, have even been called to try. Uh, 
I was thinking this morning about those listed in Hebrews 11. You know, a few of them didn't really have to do a whole lot, and they're listed among the faithful. Rahab came to mind. She was a sinful type of person as a prostitute, and yet she risked her life for Israel's sake and for God's purpose. And I don't know, I, she was preserved and lived with Israel then as a stranger among Israel from that time forward <coughs> and probably adopted God's laws and his ways in her life. Uh, Israel herself did not follow God very long once entering the promised land. But Rahab was among them. <coughs> in some ways... I can look at that and say, well, God was very merciful in that case. Uh, you know, what did she do? Well, she helped those two guys and preserved their lives. Well, there weren't very many Israelites at that point who were faithful either, were they? Even those who spied out the land. Only Joshua and Caleb came back and gave a report and said, we can do this. Let's get on it. And the rest of them said, oh, they're too big. They're too mean. We can't do this. So God was just looking for a few that would show a measure of faithfulness. And in one sense, I think that story fits because we're still human to the bone, aren't we? And he's looking for a few who will work at being faithful and true. So it's not that we, in our own minds, reach a certain level of spirituality and think, well, now God surely must save us now because we've improved. It's simply a matter of doing the best we can under the circumstance we find ourselves in and try to grow and be as much like God as we possibly can, despite ourselves. That's where we are. We're not great spiritual giants, any of us, are we? We're just human beings struggling against Satan and his way to be what we ought to be before God. And day to day, we do better or worse... And it never gets easy, and it will be a struggle till the end, and none of us will have achieved perfection by the time the resurrection occurs. We will not have made it. Thank God His mercy endures forever. And these are important concepts to consider now as we approach Passover a few days from now. That we need... His sacrifice, we need His forgiveness, His blood shed for us all over again. It's a continual sacrifice because we are not yet what we ought to be. We're still struggling, every one of us. Where is their God? Let Him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of your servants which is shed. <clears throat> That's what He's about to do on a worldwide basis. First to this nation... The great whore Israel has to be destroyed first. The beast and the false prophet hate her and will destroy her first. She stands in the way, America does, of their world-ruling empire. They want to get rid of us, so that's first. And that's Satan's wrath against Israel. God will pour out his wrath after the tribulation. Seven last plagues and all those things. But we're on the edge of these things happening right now. 
Let the sighing of the prisoner come before you. We're prisoners of this world and its system and its ways. And we have to fight every day to struggle to break those chains and those bonds that we have and truly become willing slaves of God, of Christ, and the job that he has for us to do. And as we struggle against the bands of the world and struggle to stay within the bands, the guidelines of God's way and what he wants us to do, we sigh and we cry. And he says in another place, I think in Isaiah, for those that sigh and cry for the abominations they see around them. Maybe that's Jeremiah. That's hazy in my mind. Or Ezekiel. Sometimes they go together. Anyway. Preserve those that are appointed to die, and render unto our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached you, O Eternal. And it's not really us that they dislike, it's really God, just as he told Samuel. They haven't rejected you, Samuel, really they've rejected me. Well, Samuel felt it, but the rejection was really of God and his way, because that's what Samuel was doing, was living God's way. So when they fight us, they're not really fighting us, they're fighting God. And he will avenge. We're just in the position of sighing and crying and hoping that this will happen soon. So we, your people, and sheep of your pasture, Christ is the chief shepherd, we're his flock. It's referring to the church here, first of all. We'll give you thanks forever. That shows salvation, eternal life. We will show forth your praise to all generations, to everything beyond us, as eternal beings in the kingdom of God. Chapter 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Please hear us. Hear our cry. He tells us there in Isaiah, I've said several times, not to give him any rest until these things come to pass. Stay after him. Don't give it up. Don't fail. Don't say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. doesn't do me any good to talk. Yes, it does. He wants to hear our sighs and our cries. He wants to hear our burden, our frustration. He wants to hear us turn to Him with all our heart and mean it when we pray. Oh, God, deliver us. And the worse things get the more likely we will turn in that kind of prayer. Okay? When things are going relatively well for us, we don't pray in that fashion. It's when things are tough that the tough get going. It's then they get serious and sincere. That's why we're having the trouble we're having. We must turn and pray that he give ear to us and pray it searchingly, deeply, and meaningfully. Just prayers, blah, 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 don't mean much. But the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's what we have to consider. So when he says sigh and cry and then we pray give ear, he means 
cry out. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a flock. Though you dwell between the cherubims, shine forth. It's interesting here that he doesn't say just Jacob, but he narrows it down to Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. It is interesting that most of the church in the end time, this final fulfillment to this scripture, is in the United States and Britain, or the United Kingdom. And we might add a little to that as we read on down. You lead Joseph like a flock, not the others quite as much, but the majority are in Joseph. You that dwell between the cherubims, shine forth. Give ear, let us see you, let us see your hand. You who dwell on the sides of the north between the cherubims. Let's hear your answer. We want to hear from you. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Now here he adds not just Joseph, but Benjamin. Uh, why Benjamin here as opposed to someone else? Well, you'll remember the story, of course, with Joseph and how his youngest brother Benjamin was very close to Joseph as a, as a person. And then when these individuals became nations, it could also be very true that this would be borne out in future generations that Joseph or Ephraim and Manasseh would be close to Benjamin. I have had in my thoughts from time to time that maybe there is a great amount of Benjamites in Canada. I don't think Canada is all Benjamin. Uh, if you go back and read Psalm 4, or Genesis 49, it doesn't, Canada doesn't sound like Benjamin there. It says Benjamin will raven as a wolf, and the Canadians have been generally fairly peaceful people, although they have joined in with us in the wars. So perhaps in some ways they've ravened with us. They've been our allies along with the British and some of the nations that we've gone and whipped up on. I hadn't thought of it in that context. I think of Canada generally as a fairly peaceful place, except the French and the other Canadians fighting with each other all the time. But uh, yeah, we've always taken the lead, but they've generally been right there with us. If you go back to the different wars... So maybe they have ravened as a wolf and, and more or fit Genesis 49 more than I had even thought. Uh, but interestingly, most of the New Testament, or the end time church here, came from the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada by far. The United States first, second greatest number. I don't know. Canada may have even had more church members than Britain did. It was uh, the church up there got pretty good sized. So when he puts Christ leading the flock, speaking of the church here, he singles out those three. And Canada certainly produced much more in terms of the church than has Norway, whom we have generally considered to have been Benjamin. And I don't know that that fits everything that has happened in terms of both the nations and the church when you consider the close alliance between the United States and, and Canada and how we fought wars together. So just some question marks there in terms of our thoughts. Uh, the Canadians are kind of like us in some ways. Uh, quite a few came there from Britain. 
Uh, a lot came from France. Uh, they have quite a few Ukrainians up there. Well, are they Israelites that were still scattered across Eastern Europe? I don't know, uh, but I think that may be the case. And certainly some Scandinavians, even the United States, people of Scandinavian background tended to settle in the north more than, it did, than they did in the south because they came from the uh, colder climates and they settled in the same type of climate here. So, a lot might be said here and researched a little bit, but as a sidelight as we go through, I don't want to spend too much time on that. I won't, let's get the message out of it. But let's always understand what we're reading here in the context of the end-time church in the end-time nations of Israel, because this is where they have to fit. And we need to see how they do fit so we understand God's Word better and then what is about to happen here. And certainly, uh, where the church of God should be expected to be. And this Psalm 80 might be an important key to that, really. Those are the ones, when he speaks of the church, that he mentions. So you who stand before these three, stir up your strength and come and save us. Well, he's speaking of salvation there. Come and save us. And when he returns and the first resurrection occurs, the majority of the people will have been from those three with smaller numbers from the other nations of Israel. And primarily the ones he does save are going to be the remnant that come from all over the world and they'll be within Joseph, or more specifically Ephraim, right here when the resurrection occurs. And most of those who die in the tribulation will also be in those three nations. Turn to us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So, he puts us here in the position of asking for this, of sighing and crying and looking forward to this, and of experiencing these emotions of how long do we have to suffer the conditions we live in right now. These scriptures are intended to give us hope. Hope is one of the big three things. And under conditions that we live in in this country, and in the church, hope is vital. Faith, hope, and love. Love is the most important, but faith and hope are very important as well. You don't move forward, you don't try as hard unless you have hope. You know, if, you, if you're just in a basketball game and the score is 80 to 13, and it's the fourth quarter, you don't play as hard as you might if it's, tied at that point in the game. You need hope that victory might happen. And these scriptures give us a lot of hope that victory is within reach. Shine on us, we'll be saved. Isaiah talks about this a lot, and how he turns it around. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? He said he'll be angry for a short while, and then he'll turn his face back to us. But to us, it seems like a long time. You feed them with the bread of tears, and give them tears to drink in great measure. 
You make us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Who do those little people think they are? Claiming to be the true church of God. What about all these big churches? You know, they got thousands of people coming to these evangelical Christian things and rah, rah, rahing and jumping up and down and singing. And boy, there's where the Spirit of God must be working. No, they don't know God. They don't know His laws. They don't know His ways. They don't have the love of God because they don't keep His commandments. And that's what the love of God is. So we're looked upon as ridiculous. Keeping that seventh-day Sabbath? Come on. Nobody does that. So he then gives us a little history lesson. You have brought a vine out of Mitzrayim, or out of slavery. You have cast out the heathen and planted it. He buried Pharaoh and his armies under the sea and planted it in the wilderness. Really didn't really plant it until they got into the promised land, across the Jordan. You prepared room before it, and it caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with a shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. This sounds a little like Ezekiel 16, where it describes the church, the former temple especially, as, as a vine that grew under Herbert Armstrong, but it never reached stateliness, at least in terms of God's eyes, and its roots and branches turned to its leader, Herbert Armstrong. He says, I'm going to plant a tree, take a small twig from the top, and I'll cause it to grow into more than a vine. And it will not turn its roots to its leaders, but to God. Uh, that parable and riddle there is very, very much uh, speaking, first of all, the church, as well as the nation later in the millennium. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Speaking of Israel. Which sea and which river? Uh, is that talking about the Mediterranean and the Jordan? Uh, and that's the end of it? No, he said that your land would go to the Euphrates. Ancient Israel never went that far at all. Is the Euphrates indeed the Atlantic? Time will tell. Why have you then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? Or pick at her. The boar out of the wood does waste it, and the wild beast of the field does devour it. So God has set Israel up, both as a church and as a nation, and the Gentiles are about to devour it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine. <clears throat> we sing that one in one of our hymns. And the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch you have made strong for yourself... It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. That sounds like Isaiah 5. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. He's given us his laws, his ways. He's made us strong for himself. And we took it for granted. <clears throat> now we've lost it to a great degree. But now the plea is, make us strong again for yourself. So will not we go back from you. We won't turn again to the way we were, but we'll move forward. 
Quicken us. Stir us up. And we will call upon your name. Isn't that what he says he will do to build the temple here at the end, the latter temple? He says he will stir them or quicken them is another word. It might even be the same in the Hebrew. I haven't checked it. Stir them or quicken them, excite them, in other words, to come and build in the temple of God. And that's what's going to happen right here at the end. Let's go into chapter 81 then. Sing aloud to God our strength. So you see the change in mood and attitude here. Once we sigh, we cry, we change, we turn, we ask Him to forgive us. Then we begin to sing aloud to God our strength. So he goes back and forth in the context here from what we're facing and gives us hope in a push forward in time of when our sighing and crying will turn to singing aloud and joyous laughter and happiness when God turns his face again to us and blesses us. So it goes back and forth. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring here the timbrel, the pleasant harp with a psaltery. So sing, dance, be joyous before God. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon. This one is very poorly translated. Uh, verse 3, I won't get into it in great detail here because it's more of a calendar issue than anything else. But there are those who think that the month should begin at the full moon, and they use this as their proof. Uh, the best I've been able to determine, and I've checked quite a few on this, is it should read more in the new moon and at the full moon. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon and at the full moon. In the time appointed is not uh, in the original Hebrew on our solemn feast day. So, that is generally when those things fall. If you go back to Numbers 10.10, 10, it talks about the new moons and it talks about uh, the feast days. Trumpets comes at the new moon. The, new, the uh, month always changes at the new moon or uh, the shrouded or hidden moon. But the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover generally, I, I say generally because they're not exactly at the full moon, Feast of Tabernacles comes on the 15th, and, but you've got a 29 or 30 day month every month based on what the moon cycle is right now. So the 15th isn't necessarily the exact middle of the month, nor is Passover. It's on the 14th. 14 and 14 is 28, so you've got the 29th or the 30th depending on the month and the moon cycle. So they come close to the full moon, but people sometimes look at it and say, well, the moon's not quite full. It's just a little... Well, that's right. It's the 14th. It's not the 15th. And the middle of the month could come at the 14 and a half day mark, 29 days. Or the 15th, but not the 14th ever. At the beginning of the 14th. But here, uh, where it says new moon, the Hebrew is shrouded or hidden. That is, you don't see it. It's gone. The conjunction is what it's speaking of. <coughs> So anyway, uh, that subject is some translation consideration. But the point is here that we're to be rejoicing before God when he begins to bless us. That's the contextual part we want to get out of it, not the technicality at the moment. For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. 
there Numbers 10, 10 fits because it said that he blow up the trumpets on the feasts and on the new moons and so on. Thus he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt. Interestingly, Joseph was the one who was taken captive into Mitzrayim and there prepared the way for Jacob, the rest of Israel, to come down and his brothers. And it was through that line that God worked. Now, he's doing the same here at the end. He's working through Joseph, particularly Ephraim, uh, the United States, to establish a beginning. And it is within this nation that God is working to establish his truth in the end time. It was true of Herbert Armstrong, and it's going to be true of the latter temple as well. The same quadrant of the country, the southwest, both have been and or will be used. <clears throat> so this he ordained in Joseph, where I heard a language that I understood not. He was used to speaking Hebrew, went to Mitzrayim, and had a totally different language. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. Well, God put Israel in captivity on purpose and set it ahead of time. 400 years, 430 years, and then they'll come out. And that's exactly what happened. And he removed the burden and took the hand away from the pots, uh, smelting pots, the, the construction that they were doing to build cities for Mitzrayim. You called in trouble, and I delivered you. Now, he heard the murmuring, the right kind of murmuring from Israel. Where is God? Deliver us. Bring us out of this. And God did. Now, the murmuring they did once they crossed the Red Sea, wherever that is, uh, was a different type of murmuring. That was griping and complaining. Before, it was, we are in such dire need, please help us. It's okay to murmur that way, isn't it? It's okay to sigh and cry and hope and wish and cry out to God to save us, looking to Him as the one who can and will, but not to gripe and complain. There's two different kinds of murmur there. And we need to be sure that we're on the right page and we don't become bitter and angry with God because we don't have the answers we want when we want them how we want them, but to cry for deliverance. That kind of murmuring is okay. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah. Consider this. Stop and think about this. We need to stop and think when we find ourselves in dire straits, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. Consider the things of old where God delivered his people, both physically and spiritually. Hear, O my people, and I will testify to you, O Israel, if you will hearken to me. <clears throat> There shall no strange God be in you, neither shall you worship any strange God. And anything is a God that comes between us and the true God. Anything can become an idol if it takes our time, our energy, our thought processes 
to the point that we begin to neglect God in heaven. It doesn't have to be something we carve out of wood or stone. It's anything that gets in the way. I am the eternal, your God, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's an interesting terminology, isn't it? He tells, tells us we have to seek him as we would seek treasures of silver and gold and that type of thing. But this almost sounds to me like a baby bird. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now, baby birds are really, really greedy. If you've watched them when they say, oh man, here comes mom with a worm. And every one of them tilts her head back wide open and make little noises. Feed me, feed me, feed me. I think that's what God's doing here. He says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. In other words, you're the one who takes care of me. You're the one who feeds me. You're the one who is God. I'll open my mouth very wide like a little bird. Maybe that's implied here. I don't know. But it fits. <clears throat> They're eager, very desirous of having God be the one to provide the answers for them. Just like a bird with its mama or papa bringing the worm. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. This sounds like the book of Hosea, doesn't it? Stubborn, stiff-necked, backsliding heifers. We're not broke to lead. You know, if an animal is properly trained, you can put a rope around their neck, and they will follow just very nicely right behind you. You don't have to pull, don't have to tug. But boy, if you've ever dealt with animals at all, the first remember the first time you tried to put a rope around an animal that had not been taught a thing? And they plant all four feet and pull the other direction just as hard as they can pull. So he likens us to a backsliding heifer in the book of Hosea. <coughs> says the same thing essentially here. You wouldn't have anything to do with me. So I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened to me, and Israel had walked in my ways. That sounds like Matthew 23, where Christ said, I was like the mother hen, I clucked and I tried to get you to come, and you wouldn't do it. Instead, you stoned the prophets. Anybody I sent to tell you about my way... You hated. You wouldn't listen to them. You despised them. Just like they did with Samuel. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me, he said. It's God's word that's important. Look at it in the context of the church today. I'm unimportant. I know that. I've just been told to read you God's word. And you've asked me to years ago. But sometimes it's hard to hear. Sometimes we don't want to listen. Sometimes we take it personal in a wrong way. Sometimes we blame me. I'm far from perfect, but I'm trying to point you to someone who is. And that's my job, is to point you to Almighty God in heaven and His Word in His way. But it has been Israel's history. But they've been stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, and wanted to go their own way. So, 
what I have to tell you in reading you God's Word and expounding it is something that by your very nature as a human being, you do not like. This is an uphill battle. I hope you realize that. It's an uphill battle for me. Because I read it, and I have to be responsible for it too. And that's not easy. Because it's easier for you to justify yourself in what you might or might not allow, or where you might let your mind to go, but you're going to hold me to a higher standard because I'm the one that preaches it. And that makes it more difficult. Well, God holds me to a higher standard too. He says, I'll get double the judgment that you get. That scares me. It doesn't scare me enough, I guess, because I still have so many faults and weaknesses and wrong thoughts and attitudes and everything else, just like you do. But it's God. It's His words that we today are considering together. And there's no difference in us in that sense. I've just been trained and asked to do the reading and the expounding. But we're all in this together. There's no difference in that. We will all receive judgment Mine just is a stronger, harsher judgment, that's all. <clears throat> I, should, I should soon have subdued, subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. This is God's attitude. I, I wish I could do it quicker. I wish I could take care of you. I wish I could turn your adversaries away. But I'm waiting for you. The haters of the eternal should have submitted themselves to him. Now, that's speaking of us. By nature, we're deceitful and desperately wicked. Every human being who is born and walks on the face of the earth, by nature, does not like God's way. It restricts him from the things and the thoughts that he likes. By nature. It's difficult. But we should have submitted ourselves to him, not to our human nature. But their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat, and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied you. If you just weren't stubborn and stiff-necked and killed the prophets and, and persecuted everybody who came to teach you the truth, and you had taken God's way and lived it, I would have done all these things. But instead, look what I had to do to you. Now he's saying, straighten up. And I'll be nice to you again, and I will bless you again. Let's catch 82 as well. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now, he has a congregation of angels about his throne, the 24 elders, various beings that he has created. And they are mighty. And he stands in that congregation. And you know what? He also considers us the mighty because of him. It is his strength, his power, his spirit that gives us spiritual strength and courage to face the battles we face. And sometimes we win, don't we? Sometimes we overcome. Sometimes we grow. 
Sometimes we make progress. Sometimes we have troubles. But it is through His might and through His power, not our own, that we grow at all. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. So, He considers us mighty if we are able to be baptized and receive His Spirit and begin to go against human nature and begin to be more like He is instead of like we are and have been. That makes us mighty. He judges among the gods. Doesn't he say, you are gods? That's in the context. Well, it's just a few verses down. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? That's something to pause and think of. Selah. How long will it be before God makes a difference? Because it rains on the just and the unjust. Time and chance happen to them all. I don't think it happens in the same way to us that it does to the world because he has a special consideration for those who are trying to serve him. But he is going to make a difference. And with the latter temple, he says, I'm going to give you a mini Garden of Eden, just like the Garden of God. I'm going to make conditions wonderful for you when you truly obey me and you are stirred to come and build the temple. I'm going to make things beautiful for you, and I'm going to defend you and protect you, and everything is going to be good. We have that to look forward to in the very near future. That's when he is going to begin to make a real difference. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Isn't that the first thing Christ addressed when he began to speak to the disciples? Blessed are the poor, the weak, the meek, those who have spiritual need. Matthew 5. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Even church people walk on without understanding. You go to almost any of the splinter groups of worldwide, and they walk on in a former understanding. Some of the basics were obviously correct. But they walk on trying to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and they're falling flat on their faces. And numbers are not being added in any amount that could be looked upon as God's blessing upon their work. It just isn't happening. And isn't our nation walking on in darkness? Absolutely blind, most of the population, to what is happening before their very eyes and is going to become increasingly worse until we are destroyed, as the next chapter says. Doesn't everything seem upside down and topsy-turvy in the world? All the foundations of the earth are off course. Just yesterday afternoon, did you hear that boom over here? It was almost like thunder, but it wasn't thunder. It wasn't uh, uh, sonic booms from airplanes. Just a strange, almost violent roar that occurred, like thunder. It really caught my attention. It was the loudest I've heard since these things started happening around the world. 
I've been reading up on it a little bit. Nobody really knows. Got theories. I mentioned that last week, I think. But I heard it again this week, very yesterday, very loud, very plain. Everything's out of course. The earth is groaning and moaning. Maybe that is a literal physical thing where it speaks of the earth moaning and groaning because of everything being upside down, topsy-turvy. Even nature itself groans. I think that's in Romans 1 because of these things, among other places. I have said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. God speaks of those things that are not as if they already are. He has made it our destiny and our purpose to become God. And he's going to see it through and make sure it happens. He speaks of this in John 10, 32 through 35, if you will, because they accuse Christ of claiming he was God. And he said, I am, and my people are, and will be. You know, in spite of all these things that he says about all the trials and troubles and stuff that we go through and how we are weary and difficult, uh, and it is difficult for us to grow and and, uh, proceed and move forward, he gives us something like this. His whole attitude is that we are going to make it. I will do whatever I have to to you, but you're going to make it. Ouch. But he is going to succeed. He is going to make you and I into gods in his kingdom. He is going to do that. There will be a few who don't make it. Not guaranteed, not once saved, always saved. We have to move forward, we have to grow and overcome. But it is his whole mind and attitude is what I'm trying to get across. But he wants us there and he will do whatever is necessary to get us there. And he had to destroy the church before our very eyes to begin to get our attention. And most of the church he has still not gotten the attention of. And it is going to take the great tribulation, unfortunately, for that to happen. And only a 10% remnant are going to respond and be stirred and excited and come build the latter temple. Scriptures are so clear on that. You are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. We're already the children of God, and we will become God. That's blasphemy to most people and most religions. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. We're still human. God says, projects that we're going to become God, but we're still very human, and we're still subject to death. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Is that an end-time prophecy or what? What's he talking about here? This is the final time that he's talking about. We're living in it. Let's see, it's a quarter of two. Let's, uh, let's quickly go through chapter 83, because he, he shows some things that are right here, right before us. Keep not your silence, O God. Hold not your peace and be not still, O God. So this is a prayer that we have as well, that he begin to intervene, that he set things right on the earth. For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up the head. It's going to be the whole earth. 
They'll all worship the beast, except for a very few of us. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your hidden ones. So this, if I dare use the word conspiracy, this bunch of people who want to rule the earth, they're going to hate God's people above all. We've been over that many times and how Satan will come after the church when he's cast down for the last time and will have to flee for safety in the mountains of Zion. They have, they have said, come, let us cut them off from being a people or a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Now, Satan hates the church or spiritual Israel far worse than he does physical Israel, because the church is the one slated to be in a resurrection. The rest will come up in the great white throat judgment or whatever, but he hates Israel physically and spiritually, all Israelites. For they have consulted together with one consent. Now, consulted, if you look it up, probably in the Hebrew and certainly in English, means conspired, put their heads together, whatever word you want to use there. They, behind the scenes, formed a plan to destroy. That is a conspiracy. There has been conspiracy ever since Satan plotted with the angels to take over God's throne. They consulted together and came to one determination, one consent. That is to destroy Israel off the face of the earth. So this is speaking of the Gentile nations who are against the Israelites today, wherever they are on the earth. And he then defines that. The tabernacles of Edom... Named first, Esau has hated Jacob ever since the birthright was taken. And Genesis makes it very clear that in the end time, they will be in the fat or the financial places of the earth, and they will help bring Jacob down, and they will laugh at her calamity. And they are right now printing trillions of dollars to help bring us down, and they are rejoicing in our calamity. The leaders in Washington and New York are happy with themselves for what they are accomplishing. Do we grasp that? The Bush family supported and financed Germany in World War II, Prescott Bush. The Roosevelts have. The Rockefellers have. The Edomites have done this all along. H.W. Bush and George Bush, Jr. were in on the conspiracy. Obama is in on the conspiracy. He is a puppet if ever there was one. It doesn't matter whether they're Democrats or Republicans. They are all subject to the New World Order. And none of them will save this nation. The Gentile has risen up high above us, as the Scriptures said would occur. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. So the Edomite, those who say they are Jews and are not, are listed first of the conspirators. The Ishmaelites, the Arabs are behind it and with it as well. Of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines, that would be uh, some of the children of Ham, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher, Germany is also joined with them 
they have helped the children of Lot. So Lot had children that were not Israelites, right? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the line that Israel came through. Lot divided off from Abraham, and his children are not Israelites, even though he was a brother of Abraham. They are Gentiles. So he's speaking of those who were not of Abraham is the overall thought here. Abraham is Israel. The children of Lot are the others. And this is a conspiracy then, a confederacy, if you use that word, against Israel. It is something that is well into the development and now into the institution stage in this world. They are actively destroying our economy right now. They are actively destroying our military right now. They are getting ready to destroy us completely and take us into captivity, as the scriptures say will happen. But the cry is due to them, as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin at the brook Kaisan, which perished at Endor, they became as dung for the earth. So we see this coming, and yet we're praying for the other side, that once they have destroyed Israel, God will then wreak his vengeance upon them and send Christ to rule the earth. So he says, do as you did in the past by destroying our enemies. Well, God intends to. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, their princes of Zeba and Zalmunna, all killed, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. Whether it be the houses of physical Israel, our nation, or whether it be the houses of the church or the congregations. Congregations of the church have pretty well been destroyed. And now they are taking our physical houses. They have been sold off through the selling of bonds to Gentile countries around the world. You do not own your house. The bank that owns it has sold it to other nations, probably. Well, you don't have any mortgages, do you, thankfully? But I mean speaking of the average American. They're taking the houses away. Zephaniah 1, Isaiah 5 says we'll lose our houses. We'll build them and not live in them. They'll be taken away. Not only by those who are foreclosing on the mortgages, but by this consortium of Gentile nations who will take us over. They will take all these McMansions that we have built for their benefit, and they helped fund it on purpose. And they gave loans to people who could not afford them on purpose. So they could take them away later on and sell them to other nations and make money on them. They used us as pawns in their plan to help rule the world. That's what's going on right now as we speak. And that's what this all this mortgage fraud is about. They've been sold so many times, now they don't even know who owns them. And they've used them as financial leverage to borrow more money. Maybe 30, you had the mortgage that whoever might own at this point, and then they borrowed 30 times the amount of the mortgage on it to make more money and to become wealthy and rich. That's what the Edomite is doing to Jacob today. Let's not get into that too much, but let's understand that what God wrote here is happening. 
and it is verifiable and obvious if you have a clue what's going on. The words of God here, written thousands of years ago, are coming to pass before our very eyes, and the last time that Israel's wealth will be exploited on this earth. Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O oh my God, make them like a wheel as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burns wood, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So persecute them with your tempest, and make them afraid with your storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Eternal. And all the end time prophecies are leading to what this is saying right here. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. And they will. That men, here's the goal, here's the purpose. Let all this destruction occur so that men may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah, are the most high over all the earth. In the book of Daniel, God used that to prove to Nebuchadnezzar that he was the most high God, and he set up whomever he would set up. And as it says in chapter 4, verse 6, I think, that he puts over the nations the basest of men. So when you see men in charge of governments today, you may well know and understand from God's Word that they are the very basest of men. They are politicians. They claim they're here to do you good. But the leaders of the nations today, and unfortunately including our own, from the president down through all the congressmen and so on, are, according to God's word, the very basest of men. Selfish to the core, and willing to abuse and misuse you as the citizens of the nation for their own privilege and desires. And they are going to take all our wealth away as they are proceeding to do and make slaves of us. Peons to do their will. That's why the attack on the middle class in the ruling 1% or so elite will have the rest of the 99% that survive as their slaves. Worldwide slavery is coming under the new world order. But it's going to come in such a way... Things will have become so bad that the whole world will worship the beast and think it's God's answer and be sucked in by it. What an incredible deception it's going to be. But when God is done, all that survive will know that he is God most high. That's what all these end time prophecies are about. That's what you and I are about we have been called, brethren, to be used of God here at the end to show that He is God. And I can show you hundreds of scriptures to back that up. We have a purpose, a great purpose here. We are to help Him prove to the world that He is God. 
That's what the latter temple is all about. It is here to be guided by the two witnesses and those who come to them to build a spiritual and probably a physical temple and Jerusalem that cannot be destroyed until God removes that protection and allows them to defile it and we have to flee for our very lives to the mountains. But he's got a plan and a purpose for you and me. He called us here to do it. And we can't let him down. So as Passover is coming upon us, let's examine ourselves very closely and realize how much we lack, how much we need. And not just the fact that I'm bad, but consider very deeply how much we need the sacrifice of our Savior and His spilled blood. Because it's not just about how bad we are, it's about how big His forgiveness and His mercy is. And because of that sacrifice, we can come out from under the penalty of how bad we have been and are. That's the key, is Savior. Someone who can save us from ourselves. So think about that deeply as we approach this memorial of his death and his resurrection for our sakes.